This episode of Priority One Podcast is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Mizugai. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Admirals, you're listening to episode 232 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded on Thursday, July 23rd, 2015, and available for download or streaming on Monday, July 27th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Kenna. And I'm Jace. Jace, what are we covering this week? Our special guests this week are executive producer Alec Peters and director Rob Burnett from Star Trek Axanar. We're catching up with them as they move into their latest phase of fundraising, talking about how the project is progressing and where the money is going. We also digress a bit and end up talking Star Trek canon and San Diego Comic-Con, one year on from the debut of Prelude to Axanar. In Star Trek Online news, we're reviewing the new featured episode, Broken Circle. I'm taking a more in-depth look at the new Tier 6 Resolute, and Kenna is talking Duty Officers. And as always, before we wrap things up, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Speaking of hailing frequencies, it's great to receive all your messages. So chat with us during our live stream on Thursday nights at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash live. Or answer our community questions by commenting on our website, Facebook.com forward slash Priority One, or via Twitter at STO Priority One. Did you know that this podcast isn't all we've been up to? Be sure to keep your eye on PriorityOnePodcast.com for the latest in Trek-themed news and reviews and Star Trek Online videos made specially by our team. And exclusively on our Facebook page, each month we'll be publishing a new comic following the adventures of the USS Prioritas. Head to Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast and check it out. Thanks again to all our Patreon supporters that make this show possible from week to week. Because of their support, the servers stay on, the power keeps flowing, and the team keeps producing. Help us improve the show by considering a financial contribution via our Patreon page. One last thing, listeners. Our writing team is looking for new contributors. If you're interested, shoot us an email at incoming at priorityonepodcast.com. Or click on Red Shirt Uncle Sam on our website for more information. Jace, before we move on, I would just like to give a quick shout out to Dr. Robert Hurt, a friend of the show, who was recently interviewed in Resource Magazine Online about some of the astronomical imagery that he helps process for NASA. It's a great article with some truly incredible photography, and I'd encourage all of our listeners to go trek it out. We'll leave a link to the article in the show notes for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO232. But now, let's catch up with Star Trek Axanar. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Well, Admirals, we're really excited to welcome back to Priority One, the creator and executive producer of Star Trek Axanar, Alec Peters, joined today by director Robert Burnett. 
Alec, Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Awesome. So let's open with the latest crowdfunding campaign. You've already had two extremely successful Kickstarter campaigns, which the first brought us Prelude to Axanar, and the second was just under a year ago to get the full Axanar production started. Now you're holding another campaign over on Indiegogo. There's been some confusion about this in the forum sphere, newer expanded budgets and the move to Indiegogo from Kickstarter, but obviously this is no small undertaking you're producing. Could you help our listeners understand why you're looking to the community once again for support and how this is different from the other campaigns? Sure. Well, obviously, the first campaign, as you noted, was for Prelude Tax, and we raised $101,000. That budget ultimately wound up at about $120,000 or so. The second campaign, as we specifically noted in that Kickstarter, was really to build the infrastructure that we needed before we could even shoot. We needed to get a facility, a warehouse. We needed to turn it into a soundstage by retrofitting it and soundproofing it. We needed to build sets, and we needed to do certain pre-production things. And all of those things were specifically outlined in the last Kickstarter. Unfortunately, what happens is a lot of people, you know, it's a year later, and a lot of people either don't remember or haven't kept up with us. And, you know, here we are looking for money now for the full production budget, and they're like, hey, didn't you already ask for that? And... So the answer is no, that's not what we asked for. We specifically said in the last Kickstarter what we were spending that money on. And we also said at that point, look, we don't know what the budget is. It's probably somewhere in the $650,000 to $750,000 range. We said that a year ago. And it's turned out to be uh, after we brought in Mike Demerit, who worked on Star Trek for 11 years throughout Voyager and Enterprise as our line producer. He did a full breakdown of the script and a full budget. And the budget winds up right now, you know, at $960,000. So, you know, it is what it is. We can cut as we need to, but that's obviously you never want to cut until you see how much money you have. Yeah. So that's what the third crowdfunding campaign, uh, which is on Indiegogo this time, is for. And, uh, you know, as we always say, we're always very upfront. I'm a businessman. I've had five companies. Um, One of them I did, you know, we were doing $4 million a year in revenue, and we were an eBay partner. So I'm not new. This isn't my first rodeo. So managing... You know, uh, budget is is something that's important to us. So, you know, obviously we always need to communicate better. But what we've really found out lately is that we have a really great loyal core of fans. But we also have a, a big group of donors who just they don't necessarily want to pay attention to the daily activity. They just want to see the movie when it comes out. So it's you know, it's just important to keep the lines of communication open. And we just recently published kind of a rough budget on what we spent the last year's money on. Just as we did on the first Kickstarter. The first Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. we produced our first budget within months of, uh, I think, before we even did our second Kickstarter, we had produced the final budget, you know, the more or less final budget of Prelude to Axanar. So we're real committed to accountability and transparency, but ultimately people have to read the information. If they don't read the information, obviously they're they're not going to know exactly what's going on uh, uh, on the production. And I think that there's a few other things that uh, I come from a production background where I've worked in the entertainment industry in Hollywood for 26 years now. And the difference that Axanar, what makes Axanar different is we're pretty much running it the same way that a studio would run a motion picture. When we say that a lot of the time we've been saying, well, we're not a fan film. Yes, it's true that we are, are not a licensed CBS entity, but we're making this movie exactly the way a motion picture studio would. And that means the talent and the tools and the things that we need, such as we're running our our show under guild rules. 
SAG rules, uh, WGA rules. And there are costs associated with those things to do it properly that other fan films, not only do they not do it, it's not even in their wheelhouse. And as a director, how it serves me is is the crew that I get. I don't know if you guys have seen the, the Vulcan scene that we recently that I recently directed, but yes, <laughs> that scene was was put together in a very methodical, very uh, under a, uh, under a studio model. I spent a lot of time pre planning that sequence, and the, that pre planning time, both of my director of photography Milton Santiago and also Tobias Richter who did the visual effects. It was really, I did a story, I shot a whole story reel with action figures, and I did all the voices. So you could actually watch a rudimentary version of this scene, and using that rudimentary version of the scene, we could then plan what we needed to plan. Like, because it was all shot in a virtual environment, that environment had to be pre-designed. And it, it went through a lot of iterations, and there was a lot, like I, just as, as an example, originally the script had it set in a room. And then it was going to be on a balcony. And then when Christian was still directing, it was going to be outside somewhere. And I'm like, well, you know, we have to. If you're watching the movie, we establish Vulcan. We cut to a scene where they mention Soval, and then we cut to Vulcan. And I said, look, we've got to show what what would an Axanar movie feel like to the fan base. I mean, Prelude was great, but it's people sitting in chairs against a green screen. And this is going to be the first time we see people talking. And it was really important to me. Not to make it pew, 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 you know, and have starship combat. Because it's easy to make something look great when it's flashy. But it's yeah. a lot more difficult to have two people having a conversation on an afternoon stroll and have it be compelling and interesting and draw people in. And I figured, people have seen our spaceships and they know Tobias's work, but what is an Axonar movie going to feel like? And what are our characters going to feel like when they're in a react or in relating to one another? Because in Prelude, nobody talks to anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> we wanted to show. I wanted to show. I thought it was really important to show our characters talking. You know, talking about something of import that the fan base can be like. Wait a minute, Vulcan's going to secede from the Federation? What? Yeah. You know, and <laughs> that's. I wanted people to. If we could make people interested with that scene, then we had them. Then I thought, okay. Now they know what kind of a movie that we're going to make. Yeah, it really works as a teaser on a couple of levels in that sense. You get some important information, you show some big vistas that we haven't seen before in this format, and you also show how this is different from Prelude. It's a good shift, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and I also thought that, um, you know, we wanted to show that we're making a movie, you know, it's in a widescreen aspect ratio, we're not emulating something that has ever been done before, and, you know, no one's really set out to make a, a movie that looks like a feature film. I guess you could say Gods and Men and Renegades, maybe, but to me they look more like sci-fi channel movies, where we're looking to make a $100 million feature film on 1% of that budget. So, Rob, how has your transition been into being the director now for Axanar, and what elements do you hope to bring to this production that might not have been visualized previously? Working with Alec and Christian on Prelude was great. I was, I was the editor on Prelude, so one of the things that was fun for me on Prelude is I'm kind of this Star Trek universe guy. Like, I read, I, I own all the Star Trek novels that have ever been published, <laughs> I mean, Alec knows canon and knows reference books, but if I start talking to him about, you know, Peter David's Vendetta, or people tend to... I'm really immersed in it. So 
I've always my my philosophy behind. I'll, I'll give you an example. On Prelude, when I first started working on it, I kind of asked Alec and Christian. I'm like, so what is this? Like in the 23rd century, who made this documentary? Like who got these people together? Who went to the Hall of Immortals and interviewed Karn? And they kind of were looking at me like, well, what do you mean? I go, well, if this is an in-universe documentary, somebody had to have made it. Like, who made it? And so I had sort of suggested that, well, maybe it's... it's the, the, On the Kickstarter campaign, the very first Kickstarter campaign, there was this awesome graphic that Alec had for the Federation Historical Society. And I was like, what is the Federation? And they kind of, they, well, it was made. Who made that graphic? Uh, that was Thomas Maroney. Okay, Thomas Maroney made this graphic. I love this graphic. And I'm like, what if the Federation Historical Society is like the NPR of the 23rd century? Huh. And then I'm like, what if, you know, what if they are based out of Memory Alpha? Like, wouldn't that be cool? And then I was thinking, you know, if you're on a starship traveling through subspace and it might take you, or you're, you're, you have your subspace radio on and it's going to take you eight days to get to your next destination... You know, and you're tired of, of playing uh, your your ethnic instruments in the rec deck and have people sing Beyond Antares or whatever. That gets boring. Maybe you tur- turn on the equivalent of subspace communications and you can watch something. So it was sort of my idea that, and, and out, out of that, and Christian liked that, and we have the UFP stinger at the beginning. So there's the UFP logo and it has actually a musical stinger. So there's a, a for like a kind of like NBC's dung dung dung. You know now we've got a Federation stinger, and it came from the Federation Historical Society and Memory Alpha, and that's sort of kind of my what I bring to the whole thing is I want the Star Trek universe as a place that I happen to believe is real somewhere <laughs> that that I bring that to Axanar. I mean I want to bring a real three dimensional depth, a real in universe feel to the whole proceedings. I mean, Christian was not particularly a, a Star Trek fan. I mean, he liked Star Trek, but he didn't spend his entire life, literally his entire life, steeped in it. <laughs> and so, for instance, I thought it would be really cool that we, we showed Mount Saleh. I loved when they did TOS Remastered and they tied Shakar City and Mount Saleh together. And so in my story reel, I'm like, I want to show a flyby. You know, we're going to see Mount Saleh and then we're going to find Shakar City. Because we know that the United Earth Embassy from the Forge in Enterprise is in Shakar City. And then John Eves had said that the Vulcan High Command is there. So I'm like, well, we got to see that. You know, if that's the capital city of Vulcan. Then I started thinking, all right, if they're walking, if Talera and Saval are walking, well, where are they walking? And I sort of came up with this idea that, okay, if Vulcan High Command is the capital... Maybe it's built facing, originally when the city was founded or something, it was built facing Mount Salea. So Mount Salea was kind of like the Washington Monument or this, you know, a, a place where, a, a holy place where you, you, you go and all the different things that happen. And, and so Vulcan High Command would be in proximity of, of Mount Salea. So what if where they're walking is something that is equally interesting? So I said to Tobias, I go, what if it's... If it's a, a sculpture garden and everything in the sculpture garden represents logic or mathematics or their representations of those things, that they celebrate the teachings of, of Surak. And it was sort of a contemplative place to go to meditate and be surrounded by beautiful artwork that also had something to say about the foundations of Vulcan society. So I said this to Tobias and He's like, okay, Rob, um, what does that look like? And I said, I, well, yeah. 
they're not like the you don't see the things that are out on the forge that we saw in Star Trek the Motion Picture with the Vulcan Masters. It's not that. It's not statues. It's it's more you know more like artistic sculptures. So I actually went on the internet and did a search and found out that in Europe in the early aughts there was a a, a series of there was a art, I think it was in Spain that there was a a show of the very thing that I was talking about. So I sent those uh, that example to Tobias, and it sort of went from there. So. You're going to get that from me, but then you're also going to get my 26 years of working in the industry, starting out as a production assistant on low-budget horror movies, then working on uh, other films and up to producing. And then I, I spent a lot of time on the sets of like Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia and the X-Men movies and Superman, documenting them uh, for DVD and, and Blu-ray. So I had an education watching movies at the $200 million level get made from the bottom up. And there are very few people, I think, that have that, that aren't actually involved in making those movies, but observed, uh, I bring that, which is that uh, expertise sort of allowed me to do the Vulcan scene as quickly as we had done it, and I think as effectively as we had done it. But I'll leave that up to the audience to decide. Let, let's talk a little bit about canon, because there's a lot of debate. We even see it in Star Trek Online community about what is or isn't canon or what fits with canon. How does Axanar fit into that and what are your hopes for how it will come to be seen? You know, uh, listen, I, I think CBS says the canon is what is on screen. So the TV shows, the movies, that's canon. They don't even consider the animated series canon, which, frankly, I don't either. <laughs> However, um, I mean, <laughs> canon is, that's so. that's what's canon. They're the rights holder and they say this is what, what's uh, official. Uh, and that means everything else, the books, the comics, technical manuals, you name it, doesn't matter whether it's licensed or not, is not canon. You know, uh, I, I think we all have, you know, what we refer to as head canon, which is what do we as a fan in our personal Star Trek universe consider canon? And I think, um, and that's more expansive. Uh, that is exclusionary. I mean, there's some people who can't, don't like Enterprise and don't consider it canon for them. That's fine. And some people consider the animated series canon, and that's fine. And, and then you include other things that you like into your personal headcanon. And, um, you know, listen, I, 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 I'm always flattered when we hear fans say, oh, this is canon. This comes off, I consider this canon. And that's a, that is a, just about as flattering a, a, a comment as, as one can make. Yeah, so that, that, that's that's kind of what. But realistically, it's not because it's not produced by CBS, and until CBS decides to pick us up. <laughs> well, I, you know, I would also like to say to speak to Canon because I would consider myself a Canonista. It certainly sounds like it. Well, absolutely. But here's the thing: there's a third season episode called "The Paradise Syndrome," where there's the ob the the asteroid deflector, the obelisk, and Kirk he uh, gets zapped and loses his memory. That episode takes place over the span of three months. Because the Enterprise's warp drive is, is, is damaged and it has to follow the asteroid back to the planet where Kirk is. Now, we only see an hour-long episode, but that three-month period of time happened. People got up every morning, they did things. So you can extrapolate, based on the, the time frame, what people might have been doing in the moments that we didn't see them on screen. Mm. So... If things happen in those off hours that you can say they happen, if they seem credible, if you're in a situation where A, B, and C are true, then you can assume that D, E, and F would also be true even though we didn't see them. 
Like we know people have to have meals every day. You know, we know people go about their daily lives. Now, in my mind, we only see a fraction of the Star Trek universe, even in all 700 plus episodes of Star Trek. In my mind, it's okay to come up with things and assumptions that you make about the Star Trek universe that happened off screen. And I've done that my whole life. You know, there was a, in the best of Trek anthologies that used to come out when I was growing up, there was a thing called Star Trek Mysteries Solved by an author named Leslie Thompson. And it would go into like, where was the United Earth Space Probe Agency? And when did it become Starfleet? Or when did the United Federation of Planets happen? And how come in the original series, there was no World War III mentioned, there was only the eugenics wars. Yet in the next generation, there was the post-atomic horror. You know, there's all, and I would say that Axanar, people would say, well, we, you know, we only heard that there were border skirmishes in the original series. I would say that the Four Years' War, while yes, they might not have mentioned it in the original series, there are people say do say things like Spock saying 75 years of unremitting hostilities. However, this was looked at in history. I don't know, but if you go back, it seems my job is to make it seem credible that it can fit within the Star Trek continuity and you can believe it because everything that happens in the movie seems like it could be true. And I think to me, canon, you know, we argue over these things. I, I think of myself as a history buff, you know, from Enterprise to through Next Generation. I mean, we've seen hundreds of years of Star Trek history, but we've seen really so little of it. And it's our job to try and fill it in, but make it seem credible based on what's come before and what has come after. So that's my whole thinking about arguing over what exactly happened. I mean, we have an ongoing debate about deflector shields and the deflector dish on starships. (laughs) What is a deflector dish? Why doesn't the Reliant have a deflector dish? Every ship has to have a navigational deflector to sweep out the micrometeorites in front of it. Why doesn't it have one? Why does the Ares have a deflector that looks like the Star Trek The Motion Picture deflector? I mean, we have these conversations all the time, and we are thinking about them. To be fair, I think that's probably one of the reasons that um, Axanar has gained so much sort of fan support, because it is absolutely plausible. What we've seen so far fits well with the existing canon, and you believe it, and you want to find out what happened and how it then relates back to the canon that we already know. See, that's the thing that, to hear you say that, it makes me the happiest person in the world because (laughs) that's what we're, that's absolutely what we're trying to do. So you guys have just got back from San Diego Comic-Con, where, of course, this time last year, you were just debuting Prelude to Axanar. Um, What was it like going back after Prelude was so well-received, and how was it different for you this year? Well, th- this year Rob was was on board as director. That w- that was a big difference. Uh, last year, no one knew what to expect from us, so it was a big surprise. This year, the expectations are significantly higher. I mean, we can't come out with anything now that looks like a fan film after producing Prelude. So the debut of the Vulcan scene was critical because we want to show people exactly the quality of film that we're producing. And um, pretty much everyone's, you know, extremely positive about what we've done so far. So expectations are just a lot higher. And uh, mm-hmm. it's um, we're, we're not going to be satisfied making a fan film. I mean, if we want to make a fan film, we'll take, you know, $100,000, $150,000 and go use James Coley sets and we'll shoot a fan film. 
But that's not what we want to do. We're trying to not just in Star Trek, but you know, the whole concept of Aries Studios is really it's revolutionary. We are on the cutting edge of entertainment in Hollywood. You know, we hear that all the time. People are always amazed at what we're trying to do. So it is no small feat, and it is not just Axonar that that we're trying to accomplish. Although we do want to continue making Star Trek for years to come because we love it so much. But we want to do other genre things, and we want to make movies and TV shows and web series and you name it. And so the other thing was this year at San Diego Comic Con. You know, we had some pretty interesting meetings that we didn't have last year, you know, because now people know about us. And yeah, um, so that was really positive. I think that was, you know, the highlight. Plus, I had the flu this year at Comic-Con. And that really sucked. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, it, it was it, it's always this is my 27th Comic-Con and I, I spoke on a lot of panels and I do a lot of I was on a DVD panel and uh, another Star Trek panel and. Our Starship Smackdown panel that we've been doing, which we're we're showcasing the program this year, but you know I was nervous in the sense that I had to debut this scene, and you know I'm basically putting up a scene that was done very quickly. When it's in the finished film, it'll be a little bit more refined than it is now, but I put it out there, warts and all, and people could see it. And I I literally asked for any kind of feedback. I mean, if you just put it out and say, "Here you go," but I actually said I want to know exactly what you all think—good, bad, or indifferent. So it was nitpicked to death. I've heard every single thing about it. People <laughs> liked it, but then yep. it was, which I was used to because of when I made Free Enterprise, I, I got the same thing. When I traveled around the festival circuit, I got good reviews, I got bad reviews. I had people that thought I was, I had ruined Star Trek by making such an offensive movie. Then I had people saying it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. So I'm used to that kind of, of feedback. But, you know, I was happy. I'll, I'll give you another example that of something that. So I asked Tobias Richter, I said, uh, hey, man, I want to do an establishing shot where it's wartime, so I don't just want to show Vulcan. I would imagine that Vulcan has uh, ships in orbit, defensive ships, constantly. There's constant, they're, they're ever vigilant. It is wartime. The Klingons could show up at any, any moment. And I said, can you make me, like, do you have Vulcan ship models? And Tobias did not. And I said, well... He goes, you want the like the big the big ships that you saw in Enterprise? I go, no, no, no. These would be more like destroyers. And Tobias is like, Rob, Vulcans don't have destroyers. They wouldn't make ships <laughs> like that. And I'm like, all right, all right. Well, how about perimeter defense ships? And he said, oh, okay, okay, I can go with that. <laughs> and and he said he didn't have any, but he would have to make them. And he didn't have enough time. But then he said, oh wait, I had designed some ships for a game I was going to work on that didn't happen. So then he gave me three different Vulcan ship designs. And I was like, all right. And, and he and I had this conversation about, well, what would these ships be? And, and how, how would they look? And what would their complement be? And how powerful would they be? And, and I said, these, are, these would be strictly planetary defense ships. And the fact, when, when he came back and he made them all and they were modeled, and I'm like, man, dude, these are awesome. And I got some feedback at our Starship Smackdown panel and people are like man those Vulcan ships are really cool they look similar but they're different and I, I was at San Diego thinking you know what we've done our job here if people are now complimenting us on our, our new Vulcan ships then they're paying attention so everything's yeah. going to be okay yeah they were very cool They, uh, I like the design of them we need more Vulcan ships in STO by the way if uh, any of our dev friends are listening <laughs> <laughs> now you know where to look yeah so before we wrap things up, when exactly does the Indiegogo campaign end and how can folks get involved? 
Sure. The easiest way to get involved is go to the Indiegogo campaign. It's SaveTheFederation.com. Or KlingonVictory.com. And you can uh, su- support us that way. Um, we're, we're just about to cross our, our baseline of $250,000. But overall, we need $1.3 million to complete this the way we want to. Now, we've said, you know, if we get less, depending how much we get, we'll, we'll break this up and, and film it a piece at a time. And we'll, you know, so we'll do whatever we have to do to, to make sure that this we get this going. But we really don't want to – the thing is we don't want to compromise the quality. We, we want it to be – truly spectacular and then we want to be able to make more fantastic star trek going forward so yeah so that's the best way to help us there's all sorts of really fantastic perks that, that you can that you'll find uh when you get there everything from uh blu-rays and patches uh, up to production clappers and you know you can come on and be a be a production assistant you can be a you know a background extra you can be an associate producer if you want so there's all sorts of levels to, in, in, depending on how much you want to donate to to it. And then, of course, we're really big on community. So we have our Axonard fan group on, on Facebook, which is very active. And we have a really active website at StarTrekAxonard.com where every day we're posting stuff about the production. We're posting photos of the set builds and, and so on and so forth. Another thing that I'd like to point out, too, to people is that people might balk at how much what we are trying to do and how much it's going to cost. But I've told people that if you look at World War II movies and you look at, say, World War II movies that were made in the 60s, like The Great Escape or Where Eagles Dare or The Dirty Dozen, they look a certain way. And then you look at a World War II movie like Saving Private Ryan that was made in the 90s. It has a much more realistic feel. It's shot very differently. We're trying to make the equivalent of that set in the Star Trek universe. I'm trying to make a film that doesn't feel like any other Star Trek movie that you've seen, but it's still squarely set in the Star Trek universe. To me, it's kind of like reading a great Star Trek novel. And um, I think it's going to feel and look different than anything you've seen before. But it's it's not an alternate future. It's not the mirror universe. It's not anything like that. It's set in the prime universe, in the middle of everything, with characters that you... new characters and some old characters... But it's going to feel like the Saving Private Ryan version of Star Trek, as opposed to the Where Eagles Dare version of Star Trek, or indeed mm. the 1960s television series, which we've seen in both Star Trek Phase Two and Star Trek Continues. And in answer to your question, the Indiegogo campaign ends on Tuesday, August 11th. Fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for joining us and sharing more information with us and with our listeners about Axanar, Alec. Great to get to talk to you again and have you back on the show. Rob, awesome to meet you. Great to meet you, and thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Live long and prosper. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. The release of Season 10.5 also brought us the release of the new featured episode, Broken Circle, By now, many of you will have already played it through, but just in case, be prepared. Spoilers incoming. Broken Circle follows on directly from Time in a Bottle, where we finally met the elusive Krenim. Fast forward to now, when we've set up a research facility with the intent of rebuilding Anorax's time ship with a weapon that could change the course of the war. According to researcher Jelen, this weapon removes elements from the time stream after which the time stream simply heals itself. 
but anything or anyone that isn't temporarily shielded when the weapon is discharged could find themselves stuck in the new time stream. So it's critical that before we attempt to use the weapon, we've perfected our temporal shield and we're very clear on the target we want to eliminate. We're led to a briefing in the conference room of the Krenim Research Facility, where Captain Kagran brings us up to speed on the state of the war, and in simple terms, it's not good. Plus, we haven't finished the temporal shield, and we still can't decide on a target for the new weapon. But Kagran says we can't wait, and we must launch a full-scale attack on the Iconians immediately. We rendezvous with the fleet and warp to the Herald Sphere. Unsurprisingly, the Heralds are waiting for us. We must fight through the seemingly endless waves of them until Goroth bravely sacrifices himself to defeat the final Dreadnought. The path is finally clear, and we are able to enter the sphere via the unguarded gateway. Inside the sphere, we must disable their flagship, board it, and take control. But it's not going to be easy. We defend our carriers while they assemble the boarding parties and finally beam over. Our plan is simple. Find and disable the power junction interfaces around the ship so we can take it over. But it turns out the ship is not unguarded, and Matara, an Iconian, is there to stop us. But as we disable the power interfaces and weaken her in battle, her use of the gateways to retreat weakens her. Finally, her power is drained completely and she dies, but not before summoning her sisters, who vow to avenge her. In a by now all too familiar move, we beam out of there post haste and narrowly escape. Back outside the sphere, we are able to rescue only a handful of survivors from the Herald Onslaught. We retreat back to the research facility in the Kiana system, where Kagarin tells us we now have no choice but to complete the weapon and use it against the Iconians. But should anyone really have that much power? The end. So, Jace, to start off with, let's talk morals, because this episode, possibly more than the others, made me feel very uneasy about the path that our alliance is taking. We're moving very quickly towards what would be considered genocide. So do you think that is intentional, that feeling, or do you think I'm projecting that feeling onto the story? No, I think that that's definitely intentional. I think the follow-up Tales from the War blog that we got after the release of the featured episode kind of makes that more clear than the episode even. Mm. Because in the episode, I noticed that we were really the only one, even over the temporal officer, the temporal agent, who was saying, uh, do we really want to cause paradoxes and all this stuff? Everyone else was like, well, this is how long it would take, and the only reason we're not doing it is because we're not ready yet. We were the ones saying, well, what do you mean? Is this a good idea? Well, I'm thinking that it's a really interesting choice that the leader of our alliance is a Klingon, because it's exactly how I would expect a Klingon to behave in this situation, which is, let's take no crap, we're going to do it. We, we need to attack, and we need to do it quickly, and we need to attack hard. Something with this kind of implications in terms of eliminating an entire species from our time stream, I'm not really sure that it should be one Klingon guy who's sort of leading the force. And I I think we could use some more neutral voices with maybe some alternate options for us. Yeah, I agree. I, I start to wonder if in the end we won't end up changing something that we did wrong. Mm. Like this seemed like a key moment where time in a bottle showed us how the third named Iconian was more moderate Right. And now our actions have pushed her on the side of war and revenge. Yeah. And I, I can't help but think that what we did in this adventure was actually sort of the wrong path, like the dark path. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So moving on, gameplay-wise, what are your thoughts? 
I enjoyed it. Everything seemed to work pretty smoothly for me. I didn't run into any of the issues that some folks had with Mtara, which are now fixed in this week's patch, which we'll get to. But I did notice uh, maybe I just destroyed the waves inside the sphere too quickly, but I had to wait a long time for the last boarding pods to launch. I just sort of sat inside the Herald Sphere for like an extra five minutes. Oh, what, just not actually fighting anything? Yeah, when I was done all the fighting, it was on maybe number 14 or 15 out of 18, and I just sat there as they very slowly recharged and launched more boarding pods. Yeah, I didn't have that problem <laughs> when, we, <laughs> when we played. Yeah, my only complaint about this was uh, where where we're sort of moving inside the big ship and you're disabling all the power interfaces. It got a bit repetitive because it was like, okay, let's do this, disable the thing, fight some guys, do the other one, fight some guys and move into the next room with the thing that looks pretty much like the thing that you just did and do it again. That was my only complaint. I can see why they did it because they needed to have it in stages with her becoming more and more weak and more desperate from a storyline perspective. But from the actual gameplay perspective, it was a little bit repetitive when you got to that section. Mm -hmm. And that's where most of the glitches people ran into were with them breaking the sequences or doing things that caused her not to spawn properly or to spawn improperly on the flip side. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so finally then, how would you rate this episode overall? Ooh, that's a tough one. Mm. I would give this a four and a half out of five Dyson Spheres. (laughs) Um, I I would give it a solid four out of five Tribbles. Um, yeah, the, uh, oh, yeah. The only reason I, I, I would knock it back, um, I enjoyed the story, and I'm in, still I continue to enjoy the progression of the story, but it felt repetitive. Some of the battles, so where you're, well, when I played it, when you're waiting for the carriers to sort out their boarding parties, it was just like, here's the thing again. Something's happening in the background. You have to defend them. Okay, okay, we'll just do this for a while, and then the same thing inside the actual ship, and you're. You go do that thing and then do it again and mm-hmm. again. Um, so that's the only thing that takes it off for me. But overall, still really good. I'm still really engaged with the story and looking forward to the next episode. So before we move on, I just want to mention that Cookie and Winters and I did a live stream last week of our first playthrough of this episode. So if you'd like to watch it, head over to our Twitch channel, which is twitch.tv forward slash priority one or watch it archived on our YouTube channel. Uh, Our friends in the Priority One fleet also did their run-through later that evening, so you can watch them as well. Next, let's revisit the latest generation of the Excelsior, the Resolute Advanced Heavy Cruiser. Now, this is a classic cruiser in many ways, some good, some bad. First off, I'm going to say it brought back something that many folks were glad to see gone with the Tier 6 ships, that floating ensign. This ship has a Commander Engineering, Lieutenant Commander Tactical, Lieutenant Commander Engineering Hybrid Command, Lieutenant Science, and Ensign Engineering. Now I will say the saving grace on the floating Ensign in this case is that because the Lieutenant Commander Engineering is hybrid with Command, you might squeak better use out of the Ensign Engineering slot than you would have on previous incarnations of some of these ships. But currently... The metagame is not very favorable towards command space abilities, so that's still a little iffy. Otherwise, it's a solid engineering ship. The non-fleet version has three tactical, five engineering, and two science consoles. When it goes up to fleet grade, it gains a fourth tactical, which is very nice. It also, of course, gets the usual fleet grade goodies of plus 10% to hull and shield hit points. 
Naturally, it has the full suite of cruiser Comaray commands. Uh, it has the cruiser starship ability package as you level it up. It has a turn rate of 8, impulse modifier of 0.15, and plus 5 to all power. All, again, very familiar from cruisers. It does have the advanced transwarp drive, just like the Tier 5 advanced heavy cruiser. What you will get on this one, however, are a different console, the Tactical Maneuvering Matrix, which when activated puts you into pursuit mode. Perhaps what the captain of the Excelsior would have liked to have happened when the Enterprise got stolen. <laughs> this will improve the ship's speed, turn rate, and damage resistance, and this increases the more enemies are in combat range. Kind of a desperate measures ability. I like it. Additionally, your directed energy weapons will cripple your target's engines and maneuvering thrusters for a short time, reducing their turn rate and speed. It also gives a passive bonus to turn rate, speed, and damage resistance, regardless of whether you're in pursuit mode or not. This can only be used on the advanced heavy cruisers, but in any console slot. Kind of a neat ability. I, uh, even though it's live now, I have not really uh, dug into the numbers of it. As usual, a lot of these, it's tough to compete with some of the best-in-slot consoles. However, I do like the direction they've taken with adding passive bonuses so that even when these abilities are on cooldown, you're still getting a benefit. It also has the Improved Weaponized Emitters Starship trait, which gives you Aceton Beam and Overwhelm Emitters abilities will now cause radiation damage over time to any enemies within three kilometers of the target. So. Whoever you target with Aceton Beam or Overwhelm Emitters, a radiation burst essentially goes out and causes damage over time to those folks. This sounds very specialized. If your build doesn't already use these abilities, I suspect that it will probably not cause you to change up to suddenly slot Overwhelm Emitters or Aceton Beam. Could be useful in some niche builds. Not positive about that. But overall, for folks who like a uh, solid, tanky, classic-style cruiser, or who are just big fans of the Excelsior, of which I know there are many, this remains a pretty viable ship, certainly a worthy successor to its predecessor. This week, I'd like to take a little time out and talk about something we often gloss over but is a really fundamental part of Star Trek Online, and that's the duty officer system. So newer players and even some seasoned vets often disregard DOFs because sometimes they don't really seem that important. And even Al Rivera, a.k.a. Captain Gecko, in our interview back in April, acknowledged that the system could use some improvements. But if you know what you're looking for, DOFs can be a really big boost to help you level up and even gain you a good chunk of DPS if you haven't already optimized them. Experienced players will already be familiar with these concepts, but for new players or maybe captains who are working on their first endgame build, it's worth a recap. The three main things that you want to look for are experience and special items via DOF assignments, fleet contributions, and your space slash ground active duty officers. And I'll just go into them briefly before we look at the stats of a few recent DOF releases that are worth noting. So first up is DOF assignments. Especially as you're leveling up, having DOF missions constantly running will get you a lot of experience. Along the way, these missions will also earn you special items, R&D materials, even bridge officers and special duty officers. And there are chains of missions that you can complete for extra special prizes, like in the Batran Nebula, where you can get a purple technician for free. 
When I was first starting out in the game, I was a really casual player, didn't have a huge amount of time to devote to the game, but I always kept my DOFs running and checked in on them at least daily, and I was able to reach level 50 well before I completed the story. Same with the 50 to 60 grind, a lot of people felt it took too long, but with my playtime I actually ended up hitting 60 before I completed the Delta Quadrant arc. So next up, DOFs are one of the most efficient ways that you can earn fleet credits. A single white doff contributed to your fleet will net you 300 credits, and if you obtain them by grinding down higher level doffs, you can get them practically for free. If you want more information on doing that, head over to our YouTube channel, where I've done a video on exactly what you need to do. Finally, and some would argue most importantly, doffs slotted into active space or ground duty can be a huge boost to your game performance. Each DOF comes with a special ability, like a chance to call in an additional support drone, or a chance to trigger a photonic aftershock, etc. If you're paying attention to your build and your playstyle and the DOFs you have slotted, you can gain some really good synergies. A common example of this is slotting three technicians on an ox to bat build, which all reduce cooldown times of bridge officer abilities. A purple technician will get you a 10% reduction in a boff cooldown, and using three of them reduces all of your boff abilities by 30% in total. Using those doffs means that your special weapon powers dramatically improve their uptime, and it means you're hitting ox to bat much more frequently in that particular build. As we alluded to last week, we've had a few new packs of doffs released in the last couple of weeks. Jace, can you take us through the ones from the Year of Hell lockbox? These are all Krenim Temporal Specialist DOFs. There are 27 each of KDF and Federation, and they're spread across ground and space as well as male and female. There's a really broad spectrum of active roster abilities, so I would recommend having a look through the list and seeing if any catch your eye. You'll also see that a few old favorites have returned. It's especially nice to see the return of Marion Francis Dulmer's effect, a reduction to weapon subsystem energy drain while using directed energy modulation. Not to mention the reverse shield polarity cooldown reduction DOF, which is an old favorite that has gotten popular again in recent months. We've also recently seen the release of the Delta Alliance DOF pack, which replaces the older Romulan Survivor DOF pack. It's full of Benthans, Kazon, Okompans, and more, species encountered in Delta Rising. The active roster abilities are designed to mirror the species characteristics in Star Trek canon, and there are a couple interesting ones in there, like for ranged attacks on ground, the chance to apply a stacking crit severity buff. And just as a side note, there are also three new starship traits available as bonus rewards in that pack. There are a lot of new DOFs in those packs, so obviously we can't go into them all in this episode, but we'll leave the links to the full lists in the show notes at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO232. So that brings us to this week's community question. What DOF ability would you love to see? Whether a return of a hard-to-find past duty officer or a whole new one you can't believe they've never implemented. Touching on patch notes, I'll just give a few highlights. One, the export button on the fleet roster page that lets you export the roster list to a file, plus some other Armada bug fixes went in this week. They resolved an issue, alas, that was causing industrial replicators to reward excessive fleet credits from the Engineering Construction Projects 5 and Practice Tactical Exercises 5 projects. As mentioned before, they did resolve an issue where Amtara would sometimes teleport inside one of the relays after the force field comes up, and a pet peeve of mine 
They resolved an issue where occasionally when accepting a new episode, the subtasks under the episode name would not initially appear in the mission tracker. They also fixed several starship traits and some problems with the low buy store as well as omissions. As always, I encourage you to check out the full list and we'll provide the link. Again this week, in an effort to bring you some of the news and comments from Perfect World and Cryptic that aren't officially announced in the blogs, here's the latest comments pulled from the forums and the Twitterverse. Star Trek Online tweeted, We're excited to be hosting a very special panel this year at Star Trek Las Vegas. Can't wait to learn more. Although I have to say, a very special panel. Kind of sounds like an after-school special. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? Taco Fang shared an insightful link to a bit of TNG history. If you've not read Sir Patrick Stewart's letter to Jean from 1988, take a few minutes to indulge. Thanks, Mission Log. It's quite a glimpse into the process of defining Captain Picard from just a bit into the second season of The Next Generation. Uh, Yeah, I've read that before, and it's really interesting. I would encourage you guys to go and check it out. Yeah, I really liked it. And finally, Laughing Trendy tweeted, I want to keep this meme alive, also because he's great. Hashtag one job, Phil. Never forget. (laughs) That wraps up Star Trek Online news this week. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, Admirals, we're at that part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Last week's community question was... Now that we have details on the new lockbox, what do you think of the prizes? Thomas Townley wrote in at PriorityOnePodcast.com. The new lockbox is pretty nice. Good rewards and a better chance at getting a better prize. Opened 20 and got the Tier 5 ship and some other good stuff. I hope all the future ones are like this. Small Yoda posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com. I could not be happier with the way the new lockbox turned out. I'm pleased with the changes that have been made to lockbox rewards and hope that these changes will be applied to other lockboxes in the future, as well as to existing ones. The Krenim warship looks great, and its boff layout appears to have a good balance between engineering and tactical abilities. This ship could be even better if it's flown by an engineering captain. These factors should make the ship itself a lot less squishy. Tobias LTF posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com Better reward drops from lockboxes. I'm not seeing it. After my own personal experience and reports from other friends opening this lockbox as well, we aren't seeing increased chances for better rewards, nor feeling a better return on our investment. R&D mini packs just got replaced with regular packs, and the bonus pools got their values increased. It in no way increased the odds on getting the bling. I personally opened over 100 boxes and only got one or two traits I may or may not use. Should have saved 100 bucks and just sold the keys in bulk to buy what I wanted out of the box in the first place. Ah, c'est la vie. Yeah, I'll be curious. In the past, folks have charted hundreds and hundreds of lockbox openings to see what the rough odds are, at least a close estimate. Because even opening one or two hundred, you could get uh, statistically streaky results. It's, It's pretty tricky. Christopher Carroll writes on our Facebook wall, I'm totally excited about the Tier 6 Resolute. The Excelsior is my favorite ship in Star Trek, as well as Star Trek Online. To finally get an updated and upgraded version just made it all worth it. Great show as always. Live long and prosper. Those Excelsior fans, I tell you, they Mm -hmm. are diehards. Yep. That's a very polarizing ship. Some people can't stand it. Others won't take anything less. Jonathan Towery commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com. 
I like the ships, and it sounds like they made some positive changes to this lockbox. I don't open lockboxes, but that tier 6 Resolute class almost made me give up my beloved Vesta, Vesta and drop $30. The main thing that held me back is that it doesn't have a science focus, plus I just got my Vesta to tier 5U. But if we ever got a Resolute class science variant, just saying. We also had a lot of great feedback on our interview series with Al Rivera. Sean Newboy posted on PriorityOnePodcast.com. Great show, and thanks again to Gecko for the interview. One note on story, please just change a line or two for KDF and KDF ROMs. Stop trying to use the phrase prime directive. Only the feds consider it a primary responsibility. As for the lockbox, it's all right. My typical 40 boxes did not achieve any better results than past ones. That's a fair point with the faction or race-specific text. It was my understanding from an interview a while back that the tech on their end for creating different dialogue depending on who the player was had become somewhat easier. So I'm kind of surprised that there have been a couple usually subtle gaffes about that in recent episodes given the otherwise high quality of them. Yeah, but that is a very good point about the Prime Directive. RTK142 commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, another great episode. I just want to say a couple things stemming from the interview about advanced cues. First up, and I know I sound like a corrupted digital audio file here, but they need to bump the Dilithium reward up to 960 like the old elites were. That missing 240 Dilithium is one of the biggest things keeping me away. Yeah, you're not the only one. Sanok Skyrat writes via PriorityOnePodcast.com, I have to say, listening to lead designer Al Captain Gecko Rivera, I feel for him on rewards. I've not supported the changes and been harsh towards Mr. Rivera, but hearing his reasoning has changed my mind. Thanks for a great series of interviews. Finally, one last comment from You Didn't See Anything, who commented on our website. Off topic from the community question, but Woot! Axanar hit its first stretch goal on Indiegogo. Yeah, congratulations to Axanar. That's a really good achievement. Yes, excellent. They hit their basic funding goal, and now they have many, many stretch goals, and we'll see how far they go. And just a quick correction from last week's episode. We left off one of our listeners' names when we quoted him in feedback. It was Bergens on the STO forum post for episode 230, who commented that having module slots directly on your character could potentially use up valuable inventory space. Apologies, Bergens, for the omission. Each week, our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, opinions, and suggestions for the show. Please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. Follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One or shoot an email to incoming at priority one podcast.com. Well, that wraps up episode 232 of Priority One Podcast. Before we go, here's a reminder of this week's community question. What DOF ability would you love to see? Whether return of a hard-to-find past duty officer ability or a whole new one that you can't believe they've never implemented. Admirals, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses for our community question in the comment section on our site, on our Facebook page, or with a Twitter reply. Be sure to catch our episodes every Monday morning by pointing your podcast catchers to feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. And stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to facebook.com forward slash priorityonepodcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. 
You can even join the Priority One podcast chat in-game. Just type forward slash channel underscore join space Priority One. Admirals, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One podcast. Thanks to our patrons, we've already hit our monthly running costs. And thanks to Geek Nation Tours, we can bring you on-site coverage of the 2015 Star Trek Las Vegas convention from our own table at the convention hall. Check out geeknationtours.com to find out how you can make your trip to the convention the most memorable experience ever, this year or next. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at guardfrequency.com. Covering the ongoing development of Chris Roberts' upcoming space sim, Star Citizen. If you like this show, then listening to Guard Frequency is the logical choice. The Priority One fleet is recruiting, and with the new Tier 5 Starbase, there's never been a better time to join. If you're interested, just shoot us an email with your at handle, and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. And now, you can become part of our Klingon fleet division, Warriors of Priority One. Today is a good day to join. We'd like to extend a very special thanks to Alec Peters and Rob Burnett from Star Trek Axonar for joining us this week. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast for their ongoing, dedicated, and consistent contributions over the years, including our executive producers, Elliot and Elijah, our audio engineer, Michael McDonald, with audio assistance from Brandon Parker, Jake Morgan, and Asmaria DePost. Thanks to our graphic artist, Romulan Ale, to all our bloggers and their managing editor, L, to our foundry reviewer, Jake Morgan, to our video editor, Jerry Tillman, and to consultant Midnight Shadow 7 of Holosuite Media for supporting this show. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Most importantly, a big thanks to you the STO community, and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Ready phasers. Engage. By now, many of you will have already played it through, but just in case... <sighs> I agree. This is going to be very, very long. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> Broken Circle follows on directly from Time in a Bottle. You know, now I know how Tony feels when he has to read copy written by a Brit. <laughs> sorry. It, fo- it follows on directly. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't even realize it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> and it's directly. Bro- <laughs> directly. We rendezvous with the fleet and warp to, uh, to the place. We rendezvous with the fleet. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you tried to carry on. I tried. I tried to be really professional and not just crack up like I do every time, but it didn't work. I'm sorry. <sighs> this is really serious as well. This is like war, right? Okay. We... <laughs> Excellent, yeah. <sighs> A common example of this is slotting three technicians on an ox to bat build. Uh... God, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna breathe for a second because oh my god. <sighs> Jace, can you take us through the ones from the Year of Hell lockbox? Could do. Oh, sorry. Please, please. I missed the dev tracker. Oh. <laughs> Come back, dev tracker. Yeah, we miss you. We're excited to be hosting a very special panner. <laughs> <laughs> One of them panners. <laughs> One of those panners. They're exciting to be special panners. <laughs> <sighs> I, I got nothing. I got, no, I got nothing. Small Yoda. Congrats. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was, no I was just going to rock it on <laughs> to the next Feel free. one. Right. Small Yoda. I'm pleased with the changes that have been made to Lockbox Lockbox Rewards. <laughs> oh. <laughs> We're sorry, lock Small box. Yoda. We know you didn't write that. I find it really hard to say lockbox. It's really, it's, I don't know. I find it really difficult. Okay, I have to concentrate now. Phew. I am, oh, right. Christopher, Car oh, I'll get through this. It'll be okay. I believe in you. Yeah. One note on story. Please just change a line or two for KDF or KDF rams. RTK142, which I'm sure is very meaningful, but sounds to me like a Star Wars robot. RTK142, <laughs> report to briefing. Report for reprogramming. <laughs> I love it. Sign yeah, up you're not the only one. Sorry, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just <laughs> rushing through it again. I'm sorry. Did you want to say that again? No, that, that's fine. We're on separate tracks. <laughs> okay. Sanox Skyrat, right. That is a really hard name. If you're listening, that's a hard name. Um, oh, yeah. Especially on episodes where Lennon plays hooky and I guest host. 